Well, good evening, everyone. For four weeks now, we've been hearing from Jesus in this book of Revelation as he goes through seven churches at the end of the first century. And he evaluates them. There is reassurance and love, and there are challenges and warnings. Seven churches representing all churches. And none of them is an exact parallel to All Souls in 2023. But at the same time, none of them we can pass by and ignore. And for the the first two churches, we thought about what is it that happens to churches as they get older? Does that mean that we get um, less passionate and more fearful? The answer was no. Repent, come back to your first love, be faithful, even to the point of death. Then um, in the next two letters, we thought about what churches should tolerate. Is it part of Christian unity to expand the circle to every new idea that doesn't, I don't know, contradict the creed or uh, something like that? Answer, no. Stop tolerating what Jesus hates. Repent and hold on to what you have from him. Then tonight we've got three letters. Um, One to the sleeping church, one to the enduring church, and one to the lukewarm church. And um, Sardis and Laodicea, they would be churches you would feel proud of attending. Um, One has a reputation and the other has a a self-image. They're they're wealthy and they have this reputation. But the reality is both are close to death as churches. Well, Philadelphia, the one in the middle, has no reputation and no wealth. Uh, I know that you have little strength. But Jesus commends them and encourages them and has nothing negative to say to them. So the issue tonight for us, I think, is um, it's about what reputation and prosperity does to a church on the one hand, and it's about what weakness and persecution does to a church on the other hand. And the the national context is still the one that, that Charlie prayed for us as we were praying. We're still working out how we respond to the announcement that the bishops in England made uh, last Friday. Um, they said that when it comes to sex and marriage in the Church of England, they said everything is changing, but also nothing is changing. Um, And we'll have to try to work out what they mean. Thank you for praying for all the the different meetings that happened last week. Please keep praying. Um, The bishops, they all meet together tomorrow. And then the the Parliament of the Church of England meets in a week's time to vote. Um, And I'm not going to go back over what the bishops have said, particularly tonight. You could listen to last week's sermon. Or you could listen to this morning's sermon. If you weren't here this morning, please um, get hold of that when it goes on the website. Luke um, Ijaz, he went through the, the doctrine of marriage in the whole Bible. And it was, it was really superb, this morning's sermon. It was profound, a profound look at why this isn't just any doctrine and why the Bible's view of marriage is beautiful and important and better than what it is the Church of England is thinking of of swapping it for. But what we'll do tonight, as we look at each of these three letters, um, we're not going to find issues about sex and marriage um, in each one explicitly, 
But one of these three churches is responding well to difficult times in their church. And the other two churches, they are relying on their reputation or on their wealth to get them out of trouble. And so looking at those three, that is going to help us look at how we're responding and at how uh, we are as a church as we seek to learn from Jesus. That's how we'll, we'll go through. So first of all um, is the sleeping church, verses 1 to 6. So verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's, um, it's such a bucket of cold water, don't you think? For the, for the church in Sardis, oh, I wonder what Jesus is going to say about us. I think we'll do okay. Everyone else thinks we're a great church. I know your deeds and the reputation does not match. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. So if your neighbor is actually asleep, say that to them louder. Uh, wake up. And notice, though, that um, in this letter, it's not just sort of sleepiness in general. This is something actually wrong with their deeds, verse 1. And verse 2 tells us what? It's, I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And the contrast is with a few among them, verse 4, who have not soiled their clothes. Now, I told you last week that I was looking forward to spending time with Bishop Rennes from Singapore during the week. What I didn't know when I said that was that um, I was going to hear him preach from the letter to Sardis on Wednesday night. That was pretty helpful, so I took very careful notes uh, as we looked. So let me give you a couple of things that Rennes said. He said, they are living off their past prestige. They've been made sleepy by a false sense of security. They started these deeds, but they didn't see them through, and they loosened the pursuit of holiness, polluted by adopting the standards of the world around them. Now, isn't that a terrifying picture for a big Western church with a strong reputation? Um, Jesus, he doesn't really care what you did in the past. He wants to know what you are doing now. Terrifying, isn't it, for a church facing a moment of decision and crisis in the the history of our denomination? This is at least a 100-year moment, if not a 500-year moment. And there is something dangerous about a good past reputation because it makes you stop short of finishing the deeds God has for you now. And it can make you think it's all right to adopt the standards of the world around us, soil our garments. Uh, we'll be okay because, you know, we did all that stuff in the past. Our reputation will carry us through. And Jesus warns them, verse 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. That's not about the end of the world. That's about Jesus acting to judge the church within history. And um, let me tell you one of two fun facts from history uh, for tonight's sermon. So the first one, Sardis had been the capital city of a king called Croesus. Do you know the phrase, as rich as Croesus? That was him. Uh, and he was rich because his city was impregnable. 
sheer rock walls that nobody could climb on every side. Whatever happens, he is in no danger. Unless um, all of your guards go to sleep and somebody opens the unguarded door and lets the invaders in, which is what happened to Croesus in 547 BC when they came to besiege his city and took it after 14 days only. Complacency, because you think you're indestructible, because that is what your reputation says you are, not the reality. And um, we could approach the current challenge in that way, couldn't we? Certainly there's elements of that in the denomination. We're the Church of England, don't you know? We're the church of Augustine and Bede and Cranmer and Shaftesbury and Wilberforce, the church that took the gospel to the English-speaking world. Okay, but today, faced with individualism and universalism and a sexual revolution all around us, will you complete your deeds and keep your clothes clean today? Um, We could easily do this at All Souls as well. Everyone knows that we are a clear Bible-teaching church. People travel from all over the world just to be in the place where John Stott preached. Very sorry if you come tonight. I'm sorry you've got me. Um, And there's there's nothing wrong with a good reputation. Uh, Much better than having a bad reputation. Praise God for the impact and reach of this church in the past. But what will we do today. Um, Do you know that in the 70s, John Stott and this church were at the forefront of a national response to the sexual revolution and to pornography and to sexualization in the media. There was a rally at Trafalgar Square. They filled Trafalgar Square and John Stott spoke. And the the gay Christian movement protested and disrupted an event here in the church. And the police were called and people were ejected. Now, I'm not saying we need to do the same things now, but closing our eyes to sleep with work unfinished because of what we did in the past cannot be the right answer. And what we've got in this letter, it is the urgent rescue package from Jesus for a dying church. It is wake up and strengthen what is left, verse 2. It is remember, verse 3, remember the gospel you heard at the beginning, the gospel you received, and then it's hold fast and repent. And if you do that, this is not a miserable letter. If you do that, well, there's a play on words in verse 5. Because Jesus, he will acknowledge the name of the person who keeps going to the end. And name and reputation is the same word we had four verses earlier. So when God the Father... And all of his angels are gathered and they say, oh, who is she? Or or who is, who is he? On that day, the only reputation that will matter, the only name that will matter is what Jesus says about us on that day. And if we wake up, and resist compromise and press on to complete the deeds he puts in front of us, then on that day he will acknowledge that we are his and that our name is in his book of life. 
Let me give you one more piece of gold from Bishop Rennes. Uh, Wednesday night again, he said, So where is your heart? We will only be satisfied when we receive the reward that matters to us. In other words, he didn't mention all souls, but if we had all souls, if all we want is a good reputation, then we have all the rewards we could want already. Um, Go to sleep. All is done. Uh, We could trade off the reputation of this church for 50 years uh, without having to commit ourselves to anything particularly difficult or dangerous. But if we want Jesus to acknowledge us, if that is what our heart wants, well, then we better listen to him. That's the first one, the sleeping church. Second one. Uh, Second one, the enduring church. And this is the the contrast in the middle. So look at verse 8, halfway through verse 8. I know that you have little strength. Um, So nobody travelled the world to come and visit the church in Philadelphia. No one organised a rally uh, in their... They probably never even had a rally in their backyard, let alone in Trafalgar Square. Um, Their life, it was full of pressure and opposition. And they are just clinging on. Yet, verse 8, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And uh, we're not told exactly how the, the pressure to deny Jesus was working there, but the reference to a, a synagogue in verse 9 is a lot like the one in chapter 2, verse 9. And we said then, um, nothing here is uh, anti-Semitic. Certainly nothing here is an excuse for any anti-Semitism. In fact, everybody in this verse wants to be Jewish. That's the issue. Everyone here wants to be Jewish. And John the writer, Jesus the speaker, many of the members of the church in Philadelphia, they're all Jewish ethnically. The issue is whether this small, weak church can lay claim to the privileges of the Jewish people, the privileges of the people of God, uh, the spiritual privileges as those God loves, and the political privileges in the Roman Empire as those who can live there without persecution. Um, And these Christians, they are enduring patiently, verse 10, as the um, local Jewish leadership says, actually, no, 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 not you. God doesn't love you. You can't claim to worship him. And absolutely, no, you cannot share our exemption from the worship of the emperor. That was their situation. Now, um, I, uh, as a rule, try not to go onto Twitter too often because, um, well, there are many reasons why not to go onto Twitter too often. Um, but let me give you just a possible future scenario for all souls cobbled together out of real things that real people are saying now on Twitter. So um, in the Church of England, the, the, the issue under debate is whether our denomination will hold to the historic teaching of, of all Christians everywhere that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And we here, we hold that position with an open love for anyone and everyone. Um, You can be anyone and believe anything and be welcome here with us this evening and talk to us about what you believe and who you are. And anyone who will commit to following Jesus and uh, following him on the difficult path of challenge that he gives all of us, 
which would include repenting of any sex outside of marriages defined by him. Anyone who will do that is included here at every level of membership and leadership and responsibility. And that is just the gospel, what we teach and how we welcome people. And at the moment, for that gospel, we have an exemption in the equalities law of our country uh, that says we can believe and teach what the church has always believed and taught. Um, We're not exempt from laws that would uh, protect everyone from hate speech or discrimination or protect people from coercive practices, and that's good as well. Uh, That is a good part of being part of a good nation and a good state. But here's what I think might change. Um, When the Church of England changes its teaching, and when um, vicars in the Church of England no longer have to commit to sex only inside of marriage, um, well then maybe uh, one day we'll be employing a youth worker. And uh, there'll be interviews and we'll ask the candidates, what will you teach the young people about sex? And uh, we'll ask them, in your own life, will you live consistently with the teaching of Jesus on sex. And uh, maybe a candidate from those interviews complains that we've discriminated against them. Now, under the bishop's proposals, I think actually it wouldn't matter if that candidate was gay or straight. Uh, If they were sleeping with their partner of either gender or whatever gender, and we say, I'm sorry, but at all souls, you need to follow Jesus... Um, At that point, it it won't be the government that comes after us initially. I think if my explorations on Twitter are anything to go by, it will be the other clergy in the Church of England. And they will say something like verse 8 and verse 9. They will say, "These, these are not the real people of God. This isn't what Christians believe anymore. These are the hateful bigots, they will say. And they'll say they should no longer come under our exemption in law. These are unacceptable, hateful views, and they should be punished. And the pressure will come on us to deny the name of Christ. I don't think that is, it's not a, I'm not guaranteeing that scenario, uh, but I don't think that is an unrealistic scenario either. And the encouragement here, which is the the same encouragement you can get from meeting global Christians from anywhere in the world, that Christians are weak and mistreated and under pressure. The encouragement is you do not have to give in. The, The little strength, Christians of Philadelphia, they said no. Potentially, actually, it was something about their weakness that enabled them to say no. And Jesus says, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. And um, of all the promises in all these letters, I think the one that helps with Twitter is verse 9. So um, on Twitter, everyone on Twitter is right all of the time, aren't they? And no one ever has to acknowledge that they were wrong. Well, Jesus tells these weak Christians who are being told they're not really the people of God says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Same really as the the end of the letter to Sardis. There will be a day when it will only matter 
where you are with Jesus, not where you are with the Roman Empire or the government or the media or the hierarchy of the local structures of the people of God. And these small, weak Christians, they need to know that that Jesus is strong and strong when it comes to the future. Verse 7, he has the keys. If he says you're coming in, you are coming in. Uh, The door is open. Verse 11, no one will take your crown and you can be a pillar. Um, There's some you know, big solid pillars in this building. Um, they look like they, but imagine telling one of them to get lost and get out. Never again will they leave it. And uh, in the end of the letter, names come up again. Uh, his name written on you and the name of the city, like it's a luggage label tattooed on your head. You are going to the new Jerusalem. Strange, isn't it? Much better to be small and weak, but enduring, than to have a past reputation and be falling asleep. Okay, how about our final church, third one, which is the lukewarm church over the page. The lukewarm church. So verse 15, Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, um, that verse, um, it sounds to English ears as if it was very like the first letter, as if, again, it's about passion and about love. You see, because we live in this freezing cold country, uh, we see cold as a bad thing. Um, specifically, if you're a cold person, it means you have a lack of passion, lack of emotion. Uh, so you'd think this was saying be more passionate in your love of Jesus. Um, but all the commentaries, they say that that doesn't really fit what Jesus actually says. Do you see, he says he wishes they were either cold or hot. The problem is the, the lukewarm in the middle. And the point really is about useful or not useful. Cold water is useful. It's good for drinking and it brings life. And hot water is useful. It's good for cleaning and healing. And one of the cities nearby was famous for cold springs. And one of the cities nearby was famous for hot springs. And Laodicea was famous for warm, foul-tasting, horrible water that makes you vomit. Not cold enough to bring light, not hot enough to bring health, useless. Again, verse 15, it's about what they do and don't do. So we're being asked whether we are a lukewarm church. And the the reason, though, is what I want us to spend more time on. The reason or possibly the reaction, that's what we're here for this evening. Um, Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out, Uh, vomit you out, is the word in the original. And they say, verse 17, look down at verse 17, faced with that from Jesus. They say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Too rich to realize they need help. Um, So fun fact from history number two, 
Um, there had been an earthquake that destroyed the city of Laodicea. And the Laodiceans were famous for their reaction. What they said was, actually, thank you, rest of the Roman Empire, but we don't need your help. We are rich enough. We will sort this out ourselves. Now, that, um, that might be okay for a city. Is it okay for a church? Because it, you know, could easily be the feeling here at All Souls. And we're actually in some financial trouble. There is a hole in our budget this year. But overall, that doesn't change the fact that we are a rich church. And the, the, the money that we have access to between us when we pool it all together. And that money, like a, a reputation, it could be a good gift from the Lord. Could be for us to use to help other people and to proclaim the gospel. Or it could make us too proud to ask for help. And the church in Philadelphia, um, they were um, they were poor but rich spiritually. And the church in Laodicea, they think they're rich, but they are actually poor. So just listen to the rest of verse 17. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Isn't that a horrible picture? There they are, um, you know, strutting around, saying how rich they are, how little they need help, when actually they are in danger. They're outside, in the cold. And the reality is you're trying to face the danger, wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. When Jesus says, verse 18, you've just got to ask him. And he'll give you real gold and clothes and sight. In fact, all of what's happening to them, this is his loving discipline. Verse 90, he's trying to get them to come back to their senses. So repent. And verse 20, repent and open the door to the one who you need. And if this church does that, well, he will come in and sit with them and eat with them and give them everything they need. And in the end... They will sit on a throne with him. Now, um, again, there's not an exact parallel between that church and this moment in the Church of England. But um, I want to develop a connection that I fear very deeply for uh, the Church of England. And I fear a bit for all souls. See, what matters in the situation we're in, as in all of life, is whether we will turn to Jesus and recognize that we are needy. Jesus, he only wants the spiritually poor, the blind, naked beggars of the religious life. Those are the only people who he sits and eats with. And one view on what is happening right now in the Western church is that this is God's judgment on the arrogance of Western Christians. People who think they know better than Jesus, uh, what his church should teach, and also better than the rest of the world and Christians in the past. So um, just to illustrate that, uh, I want to tell you a story from last week. Uh, It's a story about world Christians and English Christians, and it makes me very worried what is going on with Jesus 
in the hearts of the establishment of the church here. Um, but the trouble is we're so connected, it could easily be happening in our hearts as well. So um, last week, uh, a man called Justin Bardi issued a statement about what the bishops in England had said on Friday. You um, may or may not know Justin Bardi. I've mentioned him before. Uh, here, he is the Archbishop of South Sudan. Uh, and he is the chairman of the Global South within the Anglican Communion, which represents 25 out of 42 of the provinces drawn from South America and Africa and Asia, which happens to be all the places in the world where Anglican churches are growing and are young and vibrant and are excited to trust Jesus and trust the Bible. So um, he just, in his own country, leads a church far larger than the Church of England in terms of who actually goes to church on a Sunday. And he has been chosen to represent millions and millions of Anglicans from around the world. Okay, that's who he is. Now, I'm going to read to you the UK response from Lambeth Palace to what he said. And I know I haven't yet told you what he said. It's deliberate. Okay, so here's the response. A Church of England spokesman said, we are heartened by Archbishop Justin Baddy's commitment to the Anglican Communion and his affirmation of the communion as an expression of God's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This echoes the House of Bishops' desire to walk together as a single church while reflecting our different understandings. End of engagement. Okay, so um, you would assume, wouldn't you, from that, that Justin Baddy had said something nice about the Church of England, you'd think. Or at least something positive about the change last Friday. Or um, maybe that he'd said something, you know, it's difficult, but he'd said something about walking together as one church while reflecting our different understandings. You'd think maybe he said that. Let me read to you what Justin Baddy said. And this is all online for you to read. What the English bishops are recommending constitutes unfaithfulness to the God who has spoken through his written words. Uh, The Global South Fellowship of Anglicans laments the bishop's collective failure to keep their ordination and consecration vows to defend biblical truth by their life and doctrine and are dangerously accommodating the culture of the day. Slightly different, isn't it? Um, It's true that he is committed to the Anglican Communion, But it's not true that he's necessarily committed to keeping us in it. Uh, The Global South Fellowship of Anglican Provinces are committed to our calling to be a holy remnant within the communion, marked by loyalty to God and the plain teaching of Holy Scripture, whatever the cultural winds of the day. But a synod vote in favour of the bishop's proposals would be a major step in revisionism, and sadly alienate the mother church from large swathes of the communion. It will inevitably lead to a reconfiguration and a restructuring of the communion as we currently know it. So a a leader of his stature has issued a criticism of that nature. And you know, if you, you don't get to be an archbishop in Sudan unless you know something about standing up in, for Jesus in dangerous and difficult situations. He knows what he's talking about. What would you call the official Church of England response? 
You know, disappointing is, you know, that's not really the right language, is it? Dismissive, arrogant, gaslighting, would you call it? It's just saying he said something he didn't say. It's the opposite. Insulting, racist, potentially. I don't think anything actually has distressed me this much in years as the kind of collective response and attitude to the rest of the world as we do this. Even if you disagree with him, don't pretend he said the opposite of what he actually said. But we are the Church of England, don't you know? You know, we set up the Anglican Communion in the days when the world was ruled from London. And, you know, maybe there is now independence in those, those countries and, um, you know, those churches maybe even, but we are the rich ones. We don't need to listen to anyone. Perhaps not even Jesus. And um, Justin Body, he said one more thing. Um, he said, well, he offered, he offered to care for us. The Global South Fellowship of Anglicans is committed to care for those who abide by the faith once delivered and who want to be true to the communion and its foundational roots while responding to a changing world. In a word, we seek to continue to shepherd those who want to be faithful to the covenant-keeping God revealed in Christ and the Scriptures. This includes Orthodox Anglicans in England, bishops, clergy, and laity. It's us. And he sent Renis Paniah. Uh, not just here because he's a lovely, godly man and a great preacher. He was here as the director of the executive secretariat of the Global South, the representative of millions of Anglicans worldwide. He travelled here from Singapore to visit us. And she asked particularly because he slept the night in my house. Um, and he came to say, we are committed to care for you. And I can't think of a more wonderful opportunity for English Christians or a more dangerous moment. Um, English evangelical churches, with all our money and our reputation and our self-importance, we are now almost entirely powerless. Someone asked me this morning, um, what can sinner do to stop this? And they knew the answer, but they wanted to ask me anyway. And the answer is nothing. The, um, the bishops have said they will do this anyway, whether or not it's approved at Senate. So we, we need help now. And the rest of the world, the, the young churches of the world, they are offering to help. This could be the great global reset if we will listen and learn from men like Justin Baddy and Renes Panaya and go to them as we go to our Lord, poor and blind and naked, asking for help. Um, or this could be the moment where we say, actually, I, I don't need a thing. But if, all souls, um, I wonder how we feel. Um, Jesus says he disciplines and rebukes those he loves. What's happening in the world history of the church is without question a challenge, a discipline, a crisis for us at the moment. And Jesus, he is offering a throne and a name and a city to those who will endure in their weakness. And as I read these letters, it is only our reputation and our wealth that might hold us back.
And this is the great opportunity to turn to him, to open the door, and to give up on our arrogance and say that we want him more than we want anything else. Sorry, I've gone over time. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you for his love for us in the gospel, for his offer of forgiveness to anyone and everyone. And we thank you for his stern love that he disciplines us through the events of history and the challenges that face us. And we pray, Father, you would give us humility that in our need and our challenge, we would turn to him and beg for help. Uh, And we would turn to those from around the world holding out uh, arms of friendship and offers of help that we would turn to them in humility, not away from them in arrogance. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.